Good morning, brothers and sisters. Man, it's great to see you this morning. Great to sing with you. Thank you so much for adding your voice to our worship today. And if you have your Bible with you, would you go ahead and open up to the book of Romans? We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Let me encourage you to open that up. If you're new to the Bible, here's your shortcut. You'll find Romans chapter 5 on page 1000 in the Pew Bible. Uh, so page 1000 in the Pew Bible, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 uh, is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Uh, have you ever been a part of a theological discussion and become frustrated because you felt like it had nothing to do with real life? Just talking about these concepts and ideas about God, uh, and then at the end of the conversation, you're kind of left thinking, I mean, that's nice, and it's, it's important, and it's a good conversation, but I, I've got real issues I'm dealing with. I need something practical. Or maybe you've been to church on a Sunday morning, and you've left feeling that same frustration. Hey, we've dealt with some lofty concepts, but I've got problems at work tomorrow. I've got problems at home. I, I, I don't just need ideas. I need something practical that really helps me in my day-to-day -day life. You know, sometimes in church life, uh, we feel like there are two different groups of people. There are the thinkers, the sort of theologically minded, and there are the doers, those who are very practical. Just give me what's going to work and make a difference today. Those thinkers want to talk about theology. The doers want to take action. And both of those groups are prone to errors. Uh, all thinking and no action leads to a shallow faith. But all action with no thinking, well, that leads to an uninformed faith. Both groups are also prone to pride, right? The thinkers can get puffed up over their knowledge. The doers can get puffed up over their action. What's needed is for both of those groups to come together so that we have a belief that informs our living. We want to believe right so we can live right. And this is what the Apostle Paul helps us with this morning in Romans chapter 5. Paul is going to do precisely this. He's going to take a theological idea and he's going to apply it to our day-to-day -day lives. Uh, so far in our study of Romans, we've focused primarily on theological concepts. The first four chapters of Romans is very theologically minded. It deals with the nature of sin who are we as sinful people? It deals with the nature of salvation. How does it work? What does work? What doesn't work? And we've talked about this word justification over and over again. We'll talk about it more this morning. But now here in Romans chapter 5, Paul takes a definite turn towards the practical. His main concern becomes applying what we believe to how we live. So this passage is going to take the theological idea of justification and apply it quite specifically to our sorrow and our suffering. What difference does being justified make in, in our day-to-day -day lives? Well, Paul's going to help us understand that those who are justified by faith in Christ possess peace in all our afflictions and proclaim hope until the day we see Jesus face to face. This is the intersection of belief and life. If we study this passage correctly, we're going to walk away today with renewed strength knowing that the God who has justified us 
is the God who fortifies us. Do you need strength today? Are you going through anything? Are you facing any sort of challenge? If you're breathing, you are. And this morning, we need this word from the Lord. So I want to give you this strength from Romans chapter 5 by showing you two ways our justification aids us in our trials. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance, endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So in this brief passage, there's a couple of ways that our justification aids us in our trials. It helps us in our hardships. But before we dive into those two ways it comes to our help, I think it's important for us to make sure we're clear first on what exactly we're talking about when we talk about justification. And so that's the question I want us to start with. We're going to start with the theology and then we'll get to the practical. The question we'll deal with first is what do we believe about justification? Now, I've given you a a simple definition in prior weeks. It's come up multiple times in our study of Romans so far. When we talk about justification, we're talking about this. It is a one-time declaration from God at the moment of your conversion where you are declared by God not guilty of your sin and righteous by the righteousness of Christ. So you're not guilty of your sin. You are credited with the righteousness of Christ. One-time declaration at the moment of your salvation. I think it's helpful in our understanding of this if we would compare it with what the Catholic Church teaches on the doctrine of justification. And so I want to do a little compare and contrast. Where do we agree? Where do we disagree with the Catholic Church when it comes to understanding the doctrine of justification? Now, let me be very clear. My intention is not to bash the Catholic Church. That's not a helpful exercise. I have no interest in doing that or any sort of conversation like that at all. My intention is merely to highlight the differences in our understanding of justification. So my hope is that if a person steep in Catholic theology were to hear this, they would say, yes, these are indeed areas of disagreement, and also, yes, that was a fair representation of Catholic doctrine on justification. So first, let's start with some areas of agreement. There are indeed some places where the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church, when I say Protestant, I mean non-Catholic, where the Catholic Church and the Protestant church agree on justification. Two specific areas of agreement. One would be this, that uh, justification is entirely of God's grace. It is through faith. Now, as if, if you are Protestant and you see that justification is by grace through faith and Catholics believe that, you would say, well, what do you mean by grace? What do you mean by faith? That's not the question for now. We can just agree on this statement. Catholics, Protestants alike, 
Justification is entirely of God's grace through faith. Also, we agree that justification involves a not guilty verdict. On these two points, we agree. Even if the particulars may be different, on these two statements, we agree. This is where our similarities may end, though. And so I want to highlight three areas of disagreement between the Catholic understanding of justification and the Protestant understanding of justification. So the first area of disagreement is this. In the Catholic Church, uh, the belief is that uh, justification is an ongoing process tied to our sanctification. But in the Protestant Church, it's a one-time declaration apart from our sanctification. So the Catholic Church teaches that justification begins at the moment of saving faith. And, and what is the moment of saving faith? It is your baptism. And your justification is an ongoing process that's tied. It is wed tightly to your sanctification. So over the course of your life, as you continue in the sacraments of the church and living according to the Word of God, your sanctification increases, or you become more and more pure, more and more holy. And as your sanctification increases, so too your justification makes progress until the point that your sanctification merits or accomplishes your justification or the completion of your justification. The Catholic Church would cite 2 Corinthians 5.10 as one of many verses that says we're going to be judged by our works, whether good or evil. We're not judged on anyone else's works, on our own works. And so if we're going to be judged on our works, we can't be judged on Christ. We have to achieve a real holiness that accomplishes a real justification in the future. Protestants, we agree that judgment is going to be according to our works. That's a prominent theme in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. One day, all the dead will stand before God's throne to be judged by Him. The book of life will be opened. And those who are in the book of life are those who have performed works warranting inclusion. Those who are punished are those who have pursued and practiced evil. Where we disagree with the Catholic Church is that our works are not the merit by which our names are put in the book of life, but rather our works are the necessary evidence that we truly belong to God, that our names are in the book to begin with. So profound difference here in our understanding of the relationship between justification and sanctification. Catholic Church, it's an ongoing process that advances as your sanctification advances. Protestant reading of Scripture, it is a one-time declaration, not a process. It is not married to our sanctification. It is separate from our sanctification. Here's a second difference in the way we understand justification. The Catholic Church teaches that Christ's righteousness is at work in us, meaning it is a, an infused righteousness, whereas the Protestant Church teaches that in justification, Christ's righteousness is credited to us. It's an imputed righteousness. So the Catholic Church holds that God doesn't justify anyone until a real righteousness is developed within that person. In other words, God doesn't declare a person righteous until he or she is really righteous. And you can really achieve that righteousness because the righteousness of Christ is planted in you like a seed. And it will really grow and really bear fruit as you continue to live a holy life and advance in your holiness through the sacraments of the church and obedience to God. 
And so you have this potential for righteousness. It is infused in you. And when it comes to full fruit, then your, your justification is complete. By contrast, Protestant church reads the Bible very different. Says, we say that justification is the imputation of righteousness. What does that mean? If you want to sound pretentious at lunch today, drop imputation into your conversation. Think of it this way. The Catholic Church teaches the righteousness of Christ is a seed that grows. Protestant reading of Scripture, the Reformers taught that the righteousness of Christ is a blanket that covers. So when God judges you, He doesn't judge you based on what you've done or not done. He judges you based on what Christ has done. He died in your place for your sin. Uh, we believe what Paul says in Romans 4.24, uh, that uh, faith is credited to us as the righteousness of Christ. One more difference. There's many more we could highlight, but just one more uh, to help bring this uh, into clarity. The Catholic Church on justification teaches that it may continue after death. That's the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, whereas the Protestant church teaches that justification is rewarded at death. So the Catholic church defines purgatory in this way. It is a purification that achieves the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. This is experienced by those who die in God's grace and friendship, but are still imperfectly purified. This purification is necessary because, as Scripture teaches, nothing unclean will enter the presence of God in heaven. And while we may die with our mortal sins forgiven, there can still be many impurities in us. And to this, I just say that the Protestant church strongly disagrees with the very concept of purgatory. We don't believe justification is a process. We don't believe it's a process in this life. We don't believe it's a process in the life to come. We believe, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Uh, we believe that at our death, justification is rewarded. Uh, so in short, Roman Catholic Church holds that justification is a process, begins at salvation, may continue after death for some. It's a process in which a person grows in real righteousness and purity that merits entrance into God's glory. What do we believe? Here's a definition that we've worked with uh, in our study of Romans. We believe that justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, considers our sins forgiven, Christ's righteousness belonging to us, and two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So if you look at verse 1, it begins this way. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous, or since we have been justified by faith. And we take that to mean that since we are not relying on our own morality or our own religiosity or our own sanctification, and instead we have turned to Jesus in faith, God has declared us not guilty and He has credited us with the full righteousness of Christ. And to have this standing with God makes a real difference in our day-to-day -day lives. Our justification is complete at our conversion, not ongoing, not in development or progress. It is one and done declaration by God the Father because of the sacrifice of God the Son and our trust in Him. And so how does that impact our lives in the day-to-day? -day? Well, this passage tells us that our justification makes a difference, especially in our sorrows and our sufferings. Paul gives us two ways. Our justification helps us in our hardships. And the first is this. The justified possess peace through the Son. 
We possess peace with the Father through the Son. So Paul has said in verse 1, Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, or since we have been justified by faith, he takes that as a given for those who are believers. This, is, this work has been accomplished. And since that's true of us, what does it mean? It means, verse 1, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That verb translated we have is a present tense verb. We possess peace with God today, right now. It's not a peace in waiting. It's a peace here and now. What was our relationship like with God prior to our justification? Do you remember this? Prior to our justification in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, Paul said we're under God's wrath because of our sin. But now, because of the work of Christ... God's wrath on our sin is gone, it's finished, and now peace has come. We don't have to fear God's judgment on our sin, and we don't have to question whether or not He is for us or against us. Believers have true and real present tense peace with God. And verse 2 then gives us a couple of characteristics of this peace. He, He helps us understand what this peace looks like. First of all, he says this peace means we have access to God. Look at verse 2. He says, we've also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to God. Since since we're justified, we have direct access. The church does not stand between the believer and their God. The pastor doesn't stand between the believer and their God. We have direct access to God through Christ by faith into this grace in which we stand. You know, the writer of Hebrews also talks about having access to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, he wrote this. He said, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Christ, let us draw near. What do we do when we have access to God? When we have peace with Him that results in an access to Him, we draw near to Him. So the first characteristic of peace with God is access. The second characteristic of our peace with Him is hope. Look at the rest of verse 2. He says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, anytime we talk about Christian hope, I want to make sure you understand Christian hope is not a wish. It is not a dream. It is not mere optimism. Christian hope is confidence that God will keep His promise to us. So if I'm rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God, then I have confidence that He will keep His promise to welcome me into His forever kingdom at the end of my days. So since we are justified, we have peace with God. And that peace looks like this. It looks like access. And it looks like hope. When Paul talks about having peace with God, It reminds me of a different song on a different holiday. It was a song sung by the heavenly hosts on the night that Christ was born. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the words to that song go like this, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom His favor rests. Peace with God is... That's the lyrics of the heavenly song. This is the reason Christ was born and Christ died, to bring real peace to people between us and God. 
So if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, here's the question you have to ask yourself this morning. Do I have peace with God? How would you know? How would you know that you have peace with God? What would you measure your peace by? Is, is it just by a, a sense of this inner contentment or you're generally good with where your life is? Well, that's not how peace is defined or described in Scripture. The Bible doesn't tell us peace is about this inner comfort. It's about this standing with the God who created us, the God who is the judge over our souls, the God who loves us. And so how do you know if you have peace with God? The Bible tells us we have peace with God by faith in Christ. That's how we stand in this grace before our Father is through faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is not merely some sort of intellectual agreement that, that there was someone named Jesus, he really did things, he really taught things. Faith is this, it is a turning from our sin and it is a wholehearted reliance, trust that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the grounds of our salvation. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? If you have not, friend, you don't have peace with God as you are intended to know peace with God. And you may have a good life, and you may have the respect of men, and you may have every earthly accomplishment, but you are not at peace with God based on your worldly success. You have peace with God based on Christ's victory over your sin and death. Friday, we're going to recognize Good Friday, the day Christ died for your sins. Sunday, just like today, next Sunday is going to be Resurrection Sunday. We're going to celebrate His victory over death that gives us eternal life. And so I want to implore you today to turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Don't plead peace with God based on what you've done, but based on what Christ Himself has accomplished for you. I wouldn't leave this piece of property without knowing I have peace with God. And so talk to one of the pastors this morning before you leave or grab a friend who you know walks with Jesus before you get out of here today and turn your life to Christ that you can know his peace, have access to the Father and a hope that never fails because he's true to his word. He'll be true to you. And what does this peace mean for those of us who are already believers? Well, Christian, if you struggle with doubts about your salvation, then you need to get verses 1 and 2 in you. You need to memorize these and use them in spiritual battle when you're tempted to doubt your standing with God. Because it is by faith that you stand in His grace. Your hope of glory is secure by Christ. So don't let the enemy persuade you that the death of Christ on the cross was not enough or that a little legalism will soothe your empty soul. You have peace with God because if you put your faith in Christ and you're one of those on whom his favor rests, you can believe that. And what if you're struggling to make sense of the hard days you're living through? Well, then you need to get verses 1 and 2 in you in a serious way. In moments of trial, we may turn to God with accusations like, where are you? What did I do to you? Why, why are you allowing this? Friend, we need to be reminded regularly that our Heavenly Father never goes to war against His children. We have peace with Him. So whether our hardship 
is appointed by the grace of God or inflicted by the hate of the world, our response should be to draw near to Him with the access that is ours by grace and to have confidence in His Word to us. Brothers and sisters, you possess peace with God through the son, through the uh, faith, excuse me, through your faith in God the Son. There's one more way our justification helps us in our day of trouble. Not only does it give us peace with the Father, but the justified proclaim hope through the Holy Spirit. Those who are justified proclaim hope in all our affliction through the Holy Spirit. So in verse 3, Paul says this. He says, not only that, not only do we have peace through the Son, but we also rejoice in our afflictions. What does Paul mean by afflictions? If you were to look at all the places in his writings where he uses the word affliction, he uses it to describe sometimes the most intense suffering that believers will go through, but he also uses it to describe some of those common hardships that we experience in day-to-day life, like those found in marriage. So the word affliction covers a broad spectrum from common everyday difficulties to the most intense suffering. And so Paul says, whatever your affliction is, in whatever intensity you experience it, those who are justified rejoice. Many people will be terrified. Many people will be stressed or worried or fearful or angry, but not those who belong to the resurrected Lord. We saw Him die on the cross, and we saw Him walk out of the tomb. So our rejoicing in affliction is not some act. We're not cold optimists out of touch with reality. In fact, I would say Christians are more in touch with the reality of suffering than anyone else on the planet because we know how real it is and we know how short it is. It has a shelf life. It doesn't last forever. It's conquered already and one day it will be no more. So the natural response for those who know that death is defeated, is to respond to affliction with rejoicing, with praise, with thanksgiving. When Christ went through the affliction of the cross, what was the outcome? His glory. And so when we go through our afflictions, what's the result? Well, Paul tells us affliction produces endurance. And endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. So when the believer faces affliction, we know we will endure it. Can I tell you, I'm, I'm stating some facts that I'm still trying to learn myself as a broken man in a broken world. We know we will endure it. Whatever you face, brothers and sisters, will not overcome you. It will not defeat you because Christ is alive. You have to believe the Word of God over the terror of your circumstances. It will not overcome you. So we know we'll endure it. And we know that as we endure, our character changes. The essence of who we are becomes more and more like our suffering Savior. And while the enemy wanted to use this affliction to destroy us, the outcome is unwavering hope in our God who gives life to the dead. Paul says that hope will not disappoint us. Your translation of the Bible might say something like, it does not put us to shame. 
So again, Paul isn't talking about some cheesy, idealistic, plastic optimism. He's talking about the rock-solid hope that comes from having a guide who walks you through the valley of the shadow of death. It's the hope that comes from having a host who prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. So that no matter how great the trial, believers have assurance of God's love. And how do we have an assurance of God's love? It's because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us and reminds us over and over of the love of God. Over and over we have this internal voice, this reassurance, this confidence that impacts the way we respond to affliction. Do you remember when Jesus described to the disciples what the work of the Holy Spirit would be? One of the things he said was that he will lead you into truth. Guess what truth God the Holy Spirit sings over and over in our hearts? He sings the truth of God's love for us to us. He never ceases that song, and we need ceaseless reminding. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and reminds us of His love, and that's why, brothers and sisters, we can rejoice in our affliction. Now, when I said God the Spirit dwells in us, and he sings love to us. No one ran a victory lap and no one pulled out the tambourines and banners and shouted hallelujahs. And that's okay. There's a hundred reasons why you might not do that. But one is because you might not understand what a big deal it is that God the Spirit dwells in you and speaks love to you. So let me tell you a little story. 2 Samuel chapter 6. David has been made king of Israel. And he has established Jerusalem as his new capital city. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant into the capital city. The Ark of the Covenant was a vitally important piece of furniture. It's, it's this holy box that contains these sacred things. And the Ark of the Covenant, this box... Uh, is thought to be the unique dwelling place of God. Yes, God is omnipresent, but where the Ark of the Covenant rests, that's where the presence of God is found in a very real way. So when David brought the Ark into Jerusalem, he's saying that his kingdom, his rule, is going to be focused on God, built on God. And so the placement of the ark in the capital city was a big deal. The presence of God among his people was a big deal. And the whole scene is described this way in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Listen to it. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull. And a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and sounds of trumpets. Here's the ark of the covenant. The whole procession takes six steps. They stop. They lose their minds in praise to God. Sacrifice the bull and the fatted calf. Six more steps. Stop. Praise God, rejoice, sacrifices again every six steps because the presence of Yahweh was with his people. David went nuts in worship because the presence of God was signified by a piece of holy furniture. How do you think David would have responded 
if Romans 5, 5 were true for him? What if he knew that God no longer dwelt in holy furniture or temples, but now God the Spirit dwells in his children, in believers? I think his head would have exploded. I think he would have been astounded to know that that sort of grace belongs to those who belong to the Lord. People of faith possess so much more than David did. To know that God the Holy Spirit dwells in us and by his love we know that our affliction will end. The outcome of affliction is hope and that's a reason for us to rejoice. God the Spirit is in you, believer, and he loves you. Those who are justified by faith, it impacts your life. This theological idea informed by Scripture impacts the steps we take day to day. So when we face hardships, we are the kind of people who possess peace and proclaim hope. That's where Christian thinking intersects with Christian living. If we are not justified by faith, then we have no peace with God. We have no access to God. We have no hope of glory. We have no victory over affliction. We have no assurance of God's love. We have no indwelling Holy Spirit. We have nothing that's described in this passage. But being justified by faith, God's peace is yours. Your hope is secure. God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you and sings his love to you over and over, and so you can rejoice in affliction. You can really rejoice in affliction. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to close our time together in a little bit of a different way with a time of prayer. And we're going to put into practice these two realities that Paul has described for us. And we're going to pray them first, and we're going to sing them second. And so I'm going to prompt you to pray two things this morning based on the impact of our justification. At first, I'm going to prompt you to take advantage of your access to God, to stand before Him in grace, and pray the peace of God to reign in your mind and in your life. God, I need your peace. You, you know what I'm going through. You know what I'm facing. You know the turmoil I'm in. Lord, I, I need your peace. We're going to pray that together. And then second, I'm going to prompt you to rejoice in your affliction. In prayer, we're going to praise God for the hard time. We're going to thank Him for the trial. Not because we love the affliction, but because God the Holy Spirit reminds us that we are loved by Him. This type of rejoicing has a shelf life. We will not always have the opportunity to rejoice in affliction. We just have a very short window. Just the whisper of our lives. That's the only time we get to sing like this and pray like this and rejoice like this. One day we'll all gather around the throne of our Heavenly Father and we'll rejoice not in our affliction but in His victory. So today for a brief moment we rejoice in affliction because we belong to the King who conquered forever and ever. So this prayer is a prayer of hope. It's a prayer of praise. It's the prayer of hosannas. And so brothers and sisters, let's rejoice together in prayer. And then we'll rejoice together in song. Would you take a moment just in the quiet of the room and pray the peace of God for your heart and your life.
Now, if you're ready, would you rejoice in your affliction? Praise him for his nearness, for his strength, for your hope. Praise the Holy Spirit for the love he reminds you of. Father, you have made this declaration. You have looked on your children and said, justified. Not guilty. Righteous. Lord, your voice has declared this. Your judgment has made this so. And we thank you for the peace we have with you. This world is war. Our lives at times are very difficult. God, we never have to question our standing with you. We stand in the grace of Christ with access to your throne and a hope of glory to come. So, Lord, let your peace reign in our lives as we assess ourselves, as we assess our situations, as we relate to one another. May your peace overflow in the lives we live. And, God, we thank you We rejoice in our affliction because it doesn't win. It's already defeated. Death is a defeated enemy. Christ has been victorious through the cross and the empty tomb. And so, Lord, we praise you because in our hardship, we learn to lean on you. Our strength isn't great, but yours is forever perfect. And so, Lord, we praise you that what the enemy would used to destroy us, you used to strengthen us. So Lord, let us not wait until the circumstances resolved to sing our song of praise, but even now in the midst of it, from the pit itself, to lift high our praises and hallelujahs to you, because you're good, and you love us, and Holy Spirit, we hear this and believe it, that you love us. Lord, we don't know how you're going to fix it, and we don't know when you're going to do it, but we know you're going to make a way for us Because Christ walked out of that tomb. So we sing hallelujah. And we praise you with hosannas. And we thank you, God of our salvation, for holding us all the way through. And I think of those stories in this room, those that I know. I think of such incredible examples of faith from men and women who have walked with you through the fires. And God, you've been faithful. You've been so good. And so for their stories and the stories that are progressing right now in the deliverance that is happening even now and that which is to come we praise you and we glorify you father son and holy spirit we love you it's in jesus name we pray amen